Jodcast, shaken back into operation, with Emma Alexander, Shruti Badol, George Bendo, Haritina Mugushanu, Ian Morrison, Fiona Porter, and Jake Stabbert Morgan. The Jodcast, November 2018 edition. Hello, and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm George, and joining me in the studio are Fiona and Jake. Hello. Hello. And the Fiona that we have with us today is not Fiona Healy, who has graduated and left the University of Manchester and now works in Westminster on Brexit, but Fiona Porter, who is a new PhD student with us. And Fiona, would you like to tell us a little bit about what you do? Well, I've just started looking into machine learning with the Square Kilometre Array, which is a big radio telescope that's due to come online sometime in the next couple of years. I think a lot of our listeners would have heard about the SKA before in some of the previous broadcasts, but they'd certainly be interested in hearing more about the SKA in the future, and maybe even we'll hear about what you did in your PhD in a couple of years' time. Maybe so. So, in the show this time, Emma Alexander interviews Richard Bower about simulating the universe with the Eagle Project, and Ian Morrison and Heratina Mogoshanu take a look at what's happening in the November night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Shruti Badol with this month's news. In the news this month, the slowest spinning pulsar ever discovered, elusive dust clouds around the Earth finally detected, and the Hubble Space Telescope returns. First up in the news... An international team of astronomers led by Chia Min Tan, a doctoral student at our very own Churchill Bank Center for Astrophysics, has discovered the slowest spinning pulsar ever. The team, also comprised of astronomers at the Netherlands Institute for Radio Astronomy, also known as Astron, and the University of Amsterdam. Pulsars are rapidly spinning neutron stars, which are basically the collapsed cores of massive stars that have undergone supernova explosion. They are extremely dense and are also highly magnetized. As a result of which, the spinning of the neutron star leads to generation of electromagnetic radiation. This radiation manifests itself in the form of beams emanating from the magnetic poles of the pulsars. Similar to a lighthouse, the beams from a pulsar flash consistently and can only be observed if the radio emission from the beam is facing the Earth. While the fastest spinning pulsar ever discovered rotates once every 1.4 milliseconds, meaning 716 times per second, the slowest pulsar known until this discovery rotates every 8.5 seconds. This record has now been broken by the recently discovered radio pulsar PSR J02505854, whose rotation period has been found to be 23.5 seconds. The pulsar is approximately 14 million years old and is located in the constellation Cassiopeia, around 5,200 light years away from the Earth. It was discovered as part of the Lofar Tide Array All-Sky Survey that is searching for pulsars in the northern sky. Generally, pulsars are said to have reached their death line after about 10 to 100 million years when the magnetic mechanism responsible for the pulsar jets shuts down. The newly discovered pulsar is considered to be very unusual because it goes beyond the conventional pulsar deadline where the radio emission is expected to cease. A co-author of the study, Dr. Jason Hessels from Astron at the University of Amsterdam says, This discovery was completely unexpected. We're still a bit shocked that a pulsar can spin so slowly and still create radio pulses. Apparently, radio pulsars can be slower than we expected. This challenges and informs our theories for how pulsars shine. 
The team plans to further study the pulsar with the European Space Agency's XMM Newton Space Telescope. Chairman Tan says, This telescope is designed to detect X-rays. If the super-slow pulsar is detected as a source of X-rays, then this will give important insights into its history and origin. Meanwhile, the team is looking forward to discovering more pulsars with the LOFA survey. The study can be found in the Astrophysical Journal. In another news, a team of astronomers from Hungary have confirmed the existence of two clouds of dust at gravitationally semi-stable points about 400,000 kilometers from the Earth. The possibility of the existence of these clouds, known as Cordyluski dust clouds, or KDCs, was first discovered by the Polish astronomer Cordyluski in 1961. However, due to their extreme faintness, KDCs remained elusive objects and their existence was doubted by a lot of astronomers all these years. In the new study, the team of astronomers modeled KDCs to understand their formation and detection. The results obtained are consistent with the earliest observations of KDCs made over six decades ago and also match with predictions made by an earlier research by the team. Team member Dr. Judith Slisbalo of the Irtoas Lorand University commented on the discovery, saying, KDCs are two of the toughest objects to find, and though they are as close to Earth as the Moon, they are largely overlooked by researchers in astronomy. It is intriguing to confirm that a planet has dusty pseudo-satellites in orbit alongside our lunar neighbor. Two research papers related to the study can be found in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. And finally, the Hubble Space Telescope is back in action. The HST, that has six gyroscopes that help maintaining its orientation during observations, faced a glitch early October after failure of one of the gyroscopes. There was further trouble with the backup gyroscope as well which was spotted after the rotation rates it measured were found to be higher than the actual ones. This sent the HST into protective safe mode, putting all science observations on hold. Thankfully, after a series of engineering tests undertaken by the Hubble operating team, the telescope has now returned to normal science operations. Thanks for that, Shruti. Now, Emma Alexander interviews Richard Bauer about simulating the universe with the Eagle Project. So I'm here with Professor Richard Bauer from the University of Durham. And, well, first of all, I'd like to welcome you back to the Jodcast because uh, I see that Indy interviewed you for uh, our NAM special way back in 2014. That's great. It's a pleasure <laughs> to be back. So just to reintroduce you to our listeners, um, you are a Professor of Cosmology at the University of Durham at the Centre for Extragalactic Astronomy and Institute for Computational Cosmology. And you research both observational and theoretical cosmology, right? When I did my PhD, I had two supervisors, one in observational astronomy and one in theoretical cosmology. And they both expected me to work 75% of the time on their project. <laughs> and I've always tried to carry that on. You know, as my career's gone on, I found some things more interesting than others. And the balance has shifted from time to time. But I think it's very important that observers understand the theory that they're trying to test and the theorists understand the limitations of observation. So I've always tried to keep a foot in both sides of the camp. So in terms of what you work on, what is it that your research is based around? What's your background and, and what are you currently working on? So overall, what I'm trying to do is to understand the universe. But within that, my speciality is to try and understand how the universe goes from the initial conditions that we measure in the, with the Planck satellite in exquisite detail 
to understand how the universe creates the galaxies that we see today. So one of the things that's always fascinated me is the way we live in a spiral galaxy. Why are there spiral galaxies? Why are other galaxies elliptical? Why does our galaxy form stars? Galaxies that are a little bit more massive seem to be largely devoid of star formation. And so towards the beginning of my career, that was largely an observational question. There were just some very simple analytic theories, and it needed to be driven by getting better data, measuring the colors and the star formation rates of galaxies, introducing the idea of galaxy ecology, you know, how galaxies are affected by their environments and their associations with one another. Now we have these huge surveys, these very large data sets. We know a lot about the properties of galaxies in great, great detail, even their internal properties of galaxies in the local universe. But we also know a lot about galaxies when the universe was much younger, at redshift 1, at redshift 2, when the universe was only a few billion years old. Now my interests are more to try and understand that observational data by making models of the universe and trying to understand what is the physics that drives the changes in galaxy properties with cosmic time. So how is it that you go about modelling the universe? You said that so simply, but it seems like it would be quite a big task to undertake, modelling the entirety of the universe. It's not that hard. Right. <laughs> okay. the, the, the basic aim is that you take the laws of physics, and we know those from Newton. We need slightly better versions from Einstein to understand the expanding universe. But then... We basically program that into a computer and then let the computer evolve. Now, this used to be an almost impossible task because we didn't know very much about how the universe began. And that sort of very much limited what we could do. But now with the exquisite data on the cosmic microwave background, we know a lot about how the universe looked at redshift 1,000 when it was 300,000 years old. And so we can use those to initialize the computer calculation, and then we can propagate that forward in time by applying the laws of physics. The hard part is actually understanding how stars and black holes form, and how forming stars that then explode as supernova affect the formation of more stars, and similarly with black holes. And that's proved the trickiest part of the universe to understand. So it seems like you've got to take a lot of things into account. Um, in terms of computational time and computational power that's involved in doing this, I mean, what, what, what kind of levels of computing are we talking about here? The calculation that I'll talk about today is the Eagle calculation of the universe. And the largest calculation we ran took a month and a half from 4,000 compute cores on the Dirac supercomputer system. We're very fortunate to have access to this top-class UK facility, and we were able to organise access to a large fraction of the computer, two-thirds of the computer, which made it possible to run a calculation that many people thought would be impossible. And we were able to do that. And because we spent a long time developing the way we incorporated the physics, star formation, black holes... When we ran this calculation, we were able to reproduce the observed properties of today's universe in remarkable detail. 
and has proved an incredible resource both for theorists but also for observational astronomers because you can go into this simulation you can find a galaxy that looks like one you've observed with a telescope find something similar in the simulation but the beauty of the simulation is you can then press a button and time will run backwards and you can see how that galaxy was created and very much understand then the physics of things that you observe in the universe. So what are the main things that you've learned from doing these simulations? Have there been any kind of key results? Is there anything that surprised you from it at all? One of the most incredible results was the way that we were able to explain the transition mass in galaxies. So it's long been seen, if you take a big data set like the Sloan survey, that galaxies below a galaxy of about the mass of the Milky Way are largely forming stars and have been building up their mass. They double their mass on about time scale of the age of the universe. But if you go to larger galaxies, these are very much, star formation is much weaker in those systems, and they're hardly going to grow in mass by star formation in the future of the universe. And one of the great things about the simulation is when we put in the physics, we made this discovery that the simulation did and reproduced this result seen in the real universe. And we then did a lot of investigation to try and understand why. Another beautiful thing about simulations is they're like experiments. So we can experiment with the universe. We can switch things off, turn things on. And the remarkable result we found is that this transition mass is due to black holes. So black holes don't grow very efficiently in galaxies less massive than the Milky Way. They're starved of material by star formation. But as galaxies get larger, star formation is less efficient at blowing material and keeping it away from the black hole. Suddenly the black hole grows and heats up the surrounding of the galaxy so that it can gain very little further fuel for forming new stars. So this has been a remarkable result. It's amazingly robust in the simulations. And has given us much greater insight into how the universe is shaped and the diversity of galaxy morphologies as well as their star formation rates comes about. So you mentioned uh, rewinding the clock basically and looking mm -hmm. back in time um, and, and using your simulation to do, to do that. Have you wound the simulation forward in time? Can it tell you anything about how the universe is going to evolve? So this is a very interesting question and clearly one of the things we're very excited to work on now is what happens to the future of the universe. And to take the simulation and run it forward in time and measure what fraction of stars have formed in the universe so far compared to what will form in the future. And an interesting question is how much of this is due to the presence of black holes in the calculation and what would happen if we were to remove black holes from the calculation? That seems quite a pretty fundamental thing, right? Just removing black holes completely. <laughs> exactly. I, I, one of the things I found fascinating in doing this work is how important black holes are in shaping the structure of the universe. And I can remember going to conferences and people saying, how can something as small as a black hole affect their surroundings, the galaxy they're in even? And yet it seems to be true 
that the future of the universe, the history of the universe, is shaped by the presence of black holes. And I find this really interesting that you might have thought that it would be Einstein's cosmological constant would dominate the future of the universe, but actually it turns out to be the other aspect of Einstein's gravity. It's the creation of black holes that determines the future of the universe. It's very interesting. Cool. So is it just that simulation that, that you're working on, and do you have other areas of research within cosmology as well? So, so one of the things I'm heavily involved in at the moment is to measure the angular momenta of galaxies. So this is on the observational side. We built in Durham was the lead uh, institution for the KMOS spectrograph at ESO, and that gave us an opportunity to build a large, large sample of galaxies in the distant universe where we have measured the rotation speeds of those galaxies, we've measured the sizes, we've measured a lot about the structure of those galaxies, and hence we're able to, to study how the angular momentum of galaxies evolves with time. And this is very interesting because I think we can use this to understand how the Hubble sequence emerges, that early in the history of the universe, galaxies have relatively little angular momentum. They have a lot of gas. This makes the galaxies incredibly unstable. But as time passes, the angular momentum of the material accreted by galaxies increases. They get more diffuse, the gas densities go down, and the star formation rates go down, probably because the increased angular momentum makes the galaxies more stable. And so we see this in the simulations, but we also see this in the real universe, and we're trying at the moment to put these two things together, the simulated measurements and the, the simulations and what they predict versus what we actually see in the universe for the evolution of galaxies. So so when you're pointing a, a telescope at these galaxies, how do you go from those observations to, well, understanding aspects of their angular momentum, as you were saying? What kind of uh, techniques are involved in determining that? So, So we have sophisticated ways of taking the observations of the galaxy. Now, one of the, the really good things about the KMOS spectrograph is that it's an integral field unit, and it's in fact 24 integral field units all running at... I must admit, I don't know what an integral field unit ah, is, if you wouldn't mind explaining what yes, one of those let, is. Let me explain that. So, so normally you would, in astronomy, take a picture of a galaxy, and that would be very nice, and you could see some of its structure... And then you might decide to measure its redshift and you would take a spectrum of the galaxy by taking as much of the light of the galaxy as you could and making a single spectrum. And from that you could see an emission line and measure the redshift of the galaxy. But the integral field unit combines both of those things. So at every pixel in the image you obtain a spectrum. So you now have a three-dimensional data set which lets you measure for every point on the galaxy what is the movement of gas at that particular radius. And so from this you can then reconstruct the three-dimensional model of the galaxy directly from that three-dimensional data. So this lets you understand the structures of the galaxies, where the stars are being formed, 
what the rotation speeds are, but how the rotation speed varies across the galaxy. And you know an awful lot of detail, which is quite amazing for galaxies when the universe was only a few billion years old. So that, that all sounds incredibly exciting and interesting. Um, what is going to be the next major step in, in this research, be it theoretical or observational? What I'm focused on at the moment is trying to simulate a much bigger universe. So although we achieved a lot with this eagle calculation, we're still limited by the fact that we only have a little patch of the universe. It's about representative enough as the universe as a whole, but it doesn't include many of the rare objects that astronomers like to study because they're on it particularly bright and easy to measure properties of. It would be great to be able to produce a universe which is 10, 30 times bigger. So our aim at the moment is to be able to do that now. One of the problems is trying to get 30 times more computing power. That is going to be really hard. So what we've been focused on is trying to understand how to use computers better. And in particular, the architecture of computers has changed relatively recently, the structure, the way they can communicate. And so we're building a new simulation code called SWIFT, which will let us exploit these modern features of computer architectures much more effectively. So we think from this we can achieve a factor of 10 increase in speed. So with access to computers that are three times bigger, we can be simulating large patches of the universe, which are comparable to observational surveys. And so that's our key next goal. That all sounds very exciting. Uh, but I believe that's not the only thing that you work on, because last time you uh, were on the Jodcast, you talked about a project that you're involved in called the Ordered Universe. Yes. Uh, so I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of a refresher on that, um, okay, so, and maybe so, any updates since then. Yes, so let, let me give you a little bit of update on that. So the Ordered Universe project was a very interesting opportunity I had to work with historians and theologians. And they were studying work by Robert Grosstest, who was a medieval bishop of Lincoln, one of the most important cathedrals in Britain. And as well as his religious work, which is very deeply respected, he wrote a set of scientific treaties trying to explain aspects of the world around him. And one of the important things about that is at the time there wasn't a division between religion and science, as close to science as was being done at the time. And it was very much seen that trying to understand the universe would bring you closer to God. And so Robert Grosstest wrote a very interesting treatise called On Light, in which he tries to explain the origin of the universe. And one of the amazing things is the way he very much follows the same processes of deduction as we follow today. So we try to make laws of physics which explain the world around us. And then we apply those laws across all of space and time. And so Robert Grosstest does this and he sees light as being very important to the universe and being the reason why a universe made up of point-like particles is held together is by light turns out that's more or less true. And he applies his theory to try and explain the origin of the universe. 
And my involvement with that work is previously people had looked at this and tried to translate his Latin work into English and it didn't really make any sense. But the team I was involved in started trying to translate it into mathematics. And as physicists, as we read this document, we were thinking, oh, this is describing the equation of continuity. Why don't we just write down the equation of continuity? And we found that by writing the work in terms of equations, we could create something that we could then actually make a computer simulation of. And amazingly, it was capable of explaining the universe as understood by Robert Grosstest at the time. So at the time, it was viewed that the Earth was at the center, and then there were crystal spheres that surrounded the universe. But his model explains this very well, of how the spheres crystallize as a result of the interaction of matter and light. And so this has been very interesting work. It's had me working in a very different area, understanding how other disciplines work and how you try to understand historical documents. You very often have to understand words as they're used in their context of the time. So that's been a very, very interesting work and has led to significant improvement in the understanding of how people understood the medieval universe in medieval times. So now we're, we're looking at other scientific documents. We have some very interesting work understanding how the planets were seen to move and trying to understand why that was such a compelling system to have the Earth at the center and the planets moving in orbits around the Earth. And it's all very interesting how much you can learn by applying mathematics to medieval documents. So these works were all just done in terms of words. They they didn't write any mathematics no, down uh, themselves. Uh, did, did they perform any mathematics? Well, at the time, to... you could have had a very highly paid job by being able to do algebra, and you would more or less have appeared as a magician to uh, to work out calculations. The documents, though, are written in words because modern algebraic notation using symbols and letters for multiplication and division did not exist at the time. And everything was described in terms of words rather than equations of balances of words, wordy descriptions of mathematical formulae. So you can achieve a lot by trying to take the wordy description and go, oh, how would I write this as a modern-day equation? And that is then very susceptible to analysis. I wonder where, how much Robert Grosstest would have used geometry and geometrical construction to solve problems. And one of the interesting aspects is that to test my computer code and to make sure it ran correctly, I ended up having to derive a solution. And the way I derived that solution ended up being geometry. So it's quite possible Robert Grosstest was able to solve some of these word equations by drawing figures and calculating the locations of tangents to spheres. I think it's given me a much deeper appreciation of what could be done in the medieval world. These documents were written in maybe 1224 or something wow. like this, right? So when you see old documents and old buildings, don't underestimate the technical ability of people at the time. I mean, you look at Durham Cathedral, it's still standing up, right? Well, exactly, yes, yeah. 
Is there anything else that you uh, that you're working on? Any any other side projects or any any other little side projects at the moment? Well, I think at the moment the greatest interest is to understand the universe and to do these simulations better. That's led us to doing a lot more in understanding how computer codes work. What we'd like to understand better is how to do computer simulations that cover a broad, broad range of scales. One of the things that would be nice would be to embed real star formation into a computer simulation. And we know how to do simulations that would actually have the resolution to form star-forming clouds and within those clouds to form stars. But it's inconceivable that you would ever have the computational power to do this across a huge patch of universe. Mm. But that doesn't mean it's impossible. If we knew how to couple simulations of different scales, how to work out which regions we needed to simulate anew and which regions were just like another patch of the universe and so we could just transfer a result from one region to another... I think this is a very interesting scientific challenge that affects not just what we do, but a great many scientific disciplines. So that's going to be a focus for the future to try and do that better. And I hope it will have profound implications outside astronomy as well. Thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you, Emma, for for having me and giving (laughs) me a chance to to talk about this. You're very, very welcome. Thanks for that, Emma. Now we come to that part of the show where we fit in all the other bits that we can't quite fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So, George, I believe you have some work for us that Alma has been doing recently. So, yes, I went to the Alma general public website as opposed to the technical website. The technical website would have the grand declaration that cycle six is underway, but the public website has the more interesting science results. And one of the top science results, which I found very interesting, was a press release where some people have used Alma to map the surface of Europa. Now, Alma is a millimeter and submillimeter telescope, and this is a map of the surface of Europa at millimeter wavelength, so it's not going to look anything like the images from, for example, the Voyager missions, which showed the sort of whitish-yellowish surface of Europa with the cracks all over it. Instead, it shows what is thermal emission from the surface of Europa. And what's particularly impressive about this is that from Earth, Alma can see structures on the size of 200 kilometers in size. So what the astronomers are using this for, while it, first of all, seems like a really awesome demonstration of how Alma can image solar system objects, It's also uh, valuable scientifically to showing how Europa emits thermal emission, at least in millimeter wavelengths. Europa is going to produce most of its thermal emission at shorter wavelengths in the infrared bands. So it's not going to produce much of its thermal emission at millimeter wavelengths, but it still produces emission at millimeter wavelengths. And this is actually kind of valuable 
in part just for understanding how Europa functions as a thermodynamic type of object. So how does it absorb energy and how does it re-emit that energy? Potentially, this can also be used to understand things like the surface composition of the moon as well, or other properties of the surface of the moon, because the results show that Europa does not look like a smooth surface at millimeter wavelengths, but there's like some parts which are very bright, there are some parts which are very dark at millimeter wavelengths, and this says something about well, the scientific paper was, uh, written up on this said it was either something about how effective the moon is at producing emission at millimeter wavelengths. This is called emissivity. We would normally associate this with visible light, but you can have emissivity at other wavelengths as well. And so this is talking about the millimeter emissivity but you can also have emissivity potentially in the infrared as well. And this may give a hint as to what the emissivity is in the infrared as well. The other possibility is that this says something about what was called thermal inertia in the science paper written about this. And that's kind of related to heat capacity. It pretty much says that some things take more time to warm up than other things. Maybe because they're larger, maybe because they're made of different material. And this may say something kind of interesting about the top ice layer in Europa. Because I've done a lot of work using solar system objects for calibration, and this includes like my work with the Herschel Space Observatory, where I derived the calibration from one of the instruments based on observations of Uranus and Neptune. I'm kind of interested in these results because if there are variations in how the moon emits millimeter emission, this relates to models that could be used to calibrate Europa as a flux calibration source at millimeter wavelengths, and as well as submillimeter wavelengths and even infrared wavelengths as well. So I imagine that would be a useful thing for future ALMA observers. It, potentially, if people want to use Europa as a calibration source. So there are a few moons in the solar system which are used as calibration sources. Ganymede and Callisto and Titan are the three most commonly used. Uh, Europa, I don't think, has been used as much, but this does say something about just how these types of icy moons in general function in terms of absorbing solar radiation and re-radiating that from millimeter wavelengths to mid-infrared wavelengths. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about Opportunity, the Martian rover. I understand this has been covered a little bit previously on the Jodcast, because the problem with Opportunity is that right now it's not speaking to us. Yes, so this is something we've been following for a little while now. Yes, Opportunity went offline on the 10th of June, we stopped being able to contact it as a consequence of a global-scale dust storm on Mars. As Opportunity uses solar panels to power itself, enormous dust storms, no sun, no power. Anyway, NASA has decided to give it 45 days where they were going to try and get back in contact with it, both by trying to send it commands and by trying to see if they receive any signals from it. And that was starting on September the 11th, which means that that deadline has now passed. It's not too late for Opportunity, though. They have decided to give it until January this year, 
to see if we can hear anything from it. And that's because they're expecting winds in that area to pick up and hopefully, if the reason Opportunity isn't talking to us is just that its solar panels are covered in dust, the wind ought to be able to shift it and we can maybe get it back into use. So they're hoping that this future activity might shift the dust off the panels. That's the hopes. I mean, it has already by now long, long overrun its original mission time. I believe it was originally meant to be up there for uh, delivering data for 90 days, and it's been there since, I think, 2004. So it's been there about 50 times longer than it was originally planned to be. I think Opportunity is the Mars mission where there was an XKCD comic made about it where the creator of XKCD projected into the future when humanity had finally colonized Mars, but they only colonized half of it and left the other half to the rover. And they don't dare cross onto the half of the planet where the rover is located. (laughs) Oh, the rover's got first claim, has it? It has done a decent bit of exploration. It's uh, explored a number of craters, which weren't in its original mission parameters, I believe, but it's been up there so long they had to have give it something to do. Yeah, it's spirit and opportunity, as you indicated before, performed well beyond the expectations for the mission. It's always delightful when the mission performs much longer than anybody anticipated. Usually something bad happens with the mission, and it's like shorter, or the mission doesn't even function altogether, like the recent Japanese observatories that was launched into space. Spirit, I believe, went offline in around 2010, which is, after six years, is already comfortably beyond its initial parameters. And I think it was under similar circumstances. They believed it was, well, either a dust buildup on the solar panels or some sort of other critical failure, which they just couldn't account for, and Spirit is no more. But still, it's always great when these missions last way longer than they're supposed to. Absolutely. And, you know, if... Even if all else fails, we lose contact with Opportunity, never get back in contact. If anyone winds up being trapped on Mars, I mean, hey, happened in the Martian. Did they actually go and see Opportunity? No, not Opportunity. That was Pathfinder, actually. So at that point, Pathfinder had already ceased functioning, whereas Opportunity at the time was still going quite happily. It would have been a little bit pessimistic, I think. Just cannibalise it for spares. Mm -hmm. Let's not cast aspersions on its abilities. So in January, NASA is going to re-evaluate what they're going to do. If Opportunity has managed to come back online by then, all well and good, and it can hopefully continue. But otherwise, I suppose, watch this space. So what I've brought along this month is the extension of an imaging technique to spectroscopy, which has been used recently to get some novel results. The original basis for this is a technique called lucky imaging, which is a trick that astronomers use to get down to the theoretical diffraction limits of their instruments, so that the images that they get out are limited by the optics rather than the seeing, so they're not limited by whatever turbulence is going on in the atmosphere above them at that particular time. And so the basic method that they use for this is they take a lot of very short exposures of whatever target they're interested in, and they just pick out the top 10% or top 1% of all of those very brief exposures and pull them together. And so what you can then hopefully do with that is if you consider a source that is actually made up of multiple components, 
you can then actually resolve it sufficiently finely such that those individual components then become visible. So what might appear as a single star can then be successfully resolved as a triple. And so what the authors of this paper have done is they have targeted a few O-type stars, most of which are in the constellation of Orion. And the quote from the paper is, O-stars love company. That was stated in the introduction. So the issue with these kinds of objects that the authors are interested in is that they don't live by themselves. So they're in triple or quadruple systems. There's some kind of hierarchy going on. They appear very close together with whatever instrument you're using. So you need some tricks to be able to resolve them. And so what they've now done is they've extended this concept of lucky imaging to recover spectra instead. So they've been using a spectrograph on the William Herschel telescope at La Palma. And so they have effectively pioneered this technique of lucky spectroscopy. And they've been able to show that this works. They've taken the same trick of many short exposures, but this time using a long slit spectrograph instead of a camera, picking out the best ones. And they can then resolve these otherwise blended sources to recover individual spectra of these various components. So I just thought it was a new extension of a previously cool trick that astronomers use. It's a nice illustration of how we get round problems that we're facing in the night sky. You said the top 1% or 10% of images. That's percentage in terms of what? In terms of clarity of image? Yeah, so they are looking at the full with half maximum that they recover. They're trying to look at what the atmosphere is doing at that particular time. So to kind of back up a little bit and cover some basics about what the full with half maximum means. So first of all, when we talk about seeing, we're talking about variations in the atmospheric density causing changes to the focus of stars as observed by telescopes. If you look at stars naked eye, they will twinkle because of this turbulence type of effect. When a telescope looks at the stars, these stars actually appear to blur. And one of the ways to characterize the blurriness of the star is to measure what's called the full width half maximum. So you would image a star and then you would measure the number of photons that you got from the star in a thin strip through the center of the star. This will give you a plot of brightness versus distance from the center. The full width half maximum is a good way to classify how much a star has been blurred, and you get it by looking at where the light peaks, measuring that, and then looking at the locations which are half the brightness of that peak and how far apart they are. If you have something which is really blurry, that full width half maximum for that function will be really spread out. So I think for a good observatory on the planet Earth, you'd typically get around one arc second seeing or one arc second full width half maximum. To put that into context, there are 180 degrees in the sky. Each degree can be broken down into 60 arc minutes, and each arc minute can be broken down into 60 arc seconds. So one arc second still sounds very small, but astronomers always want to go even smaller. And also, just for reference too, the moon and the sun are both about 30 arc minutes across. So it gives you an idea of how small we're talking about. But yeah, going even smaller is even better. Trust me. And so what the team has been able to do in this case is using this technique of lucky spectroscopy, they have been able to push down 
to get effective seeing of 0.3 arc seconds. Well, I'm definitely interested in that because a lot of the work that I do on star formation involves looking for O-stars or the effects of O-stars on their environment. So this is definitely very interesting, Jay. And now, targeting the O-type stars you can see in the sky, here's Ian Morrison with this month's night sky. The night sky for November 2018. We're looking up at the heavens after dark. What is called the Summer Triangle, the bright stars of Altair, Vega and Deneb, is now setting down towards the western horizon. Just to the west of south is the great square of Pegasus, the upturned winged horse. If you start at the top left-hand star of the square, it's actually Alpha Andromedae, or Alpharats, it's a, a way to find M31, the Andromeda galaxy. Move one star over to the left, move round slightly, rightwards, to the next bright star, then turn sharp right, 90 degrees, find one other star, and just the same distance beyond that star, you should see a little fuzzy glob. And that's the Andromeda galaxy. Now, if it's really dark and transparent, well away from towns and cities, if you work your way back from Andromeda to those two stars and carry on about the same distance, you come to the constellation of Triangulum. And there is the rather faint galaxy M33. It looks to me like a little bit of tissue paper stuck on the sky. So that's two things to look for on a dark night with perhaps binoculars. High above Andromeda is the constellation of Cassiopeia. And in fact, the V, the lower right part of the W of Cassiopeia, actually is a pointer, another way to find Andromeda. It points down quite well. And following down from Cassiopeia towards the east, you come down to the constellation of Perseus. Its bright star is called Murfak, and there's also an interesting star there called Algol, the demon star, which is an eclipsing binary. And between the two, with binoculars or a small telescope, you might find the double cluster in Perseus, which is rather nice. Incidentally, I do have a blog, I call it a digest, which is linked to from the Jodrabank Night Sky page, and I've actually just put on an article about imaging the double cluster, and I think there's quite a nice picture at the end which I got. If you come down towards the southeastern horizon, we come to the constellation of Taurus the Bull, with a lovely open cluster, the Pleiades, and an even more open cluster, the Hyades cluster. There's a bright star, Aldebaran, in that direction. It's not part of the cluster, it's about halfway between us and the cluster. But it's a lovely region of sky which will become more prominent, along with the constellation of Ryan, just rising down in the east as the months progress. So quite a lot to see. I hope you enjoy just using your eyes and perhaps binoculars to search the heavens. What about the planets? Well, Jupiter is now moving towards its superior conjunction that's behind the sun on November the 26th and really won't be visible this month. Now, Saturn is still visible, low in the southwest at an elevation of about 11 degrees after sunset. And that's at the beginning of November but it disappears into the sun's glare by the end of the month. The disk has an angular size of about 15.7 arc seconds, falling to 15.2 during the month, whilst the brightness actually increases slightly from plus 0.5 to plus 0.6 magnitudes. The rings were at their widest last year, but are still quite wide and span about two and a half times the size of Saturn's globe. 
Saturn is now moving westwards over the teapot of Sagittarius to the left of M8, the Lagoon Nebula. Well, Mercury reaches its greatest elongation east from the Sun on November the 6th. But as the angle of the ecliptic to the horizon is very shallow at this time of the year, it'll be lost in the Sun's glare as it moves towards its inferior conjunction, that's between us and the Sun, on the 27th of the month. So not really a good month for Mercury. Well, Mars, though fading from magnitude minus 0.6 to minus 0.1, it actually becomes more prominent in the southern sky after sunset as it climbs higher in elevation from about 17 degrees at the start of the month to 27 degrees by month's end. If only it had that elevation when it was closest to us, our imaging would have been much better. Its angular size of 11.9 arc seconds as November starts falls to 9.3 arc seconds by its end. It moves from Capricornus into Aquarius on November the 11th, and with a small or medium-sized telescope, it should still just be possible to spot details such as Certis Major on its salmon pink surface. Venus passed between us and the Sun, that's inferior conjunction, on October the 26th, and can be seen from around the 8th of the month, low in the east before sunrise. In contrast to Mercury, at this time of the year, the ecliptic at dawn has a steep angle to the horizon, so it rapidly increases in elevation as November progresses, will have an elevation of about 20 degrees at sunrise by month's end. It brightens from minus 4.6 to a dazzling minus 4.9 magnitudes during the month, and it will then dominate the pre-dawn eastern sky. The angular size reduces from 60 down to 41 arc seconds as it moves away from the Earth. But at the same time, the percentage illuminated disk, that's called its phase, increases from 1 to 25%, which is why the brightness actually increases. Finally, what about the highlights? Well, it's still a good month to observe Neptune and Uranus with a small telescope. And on the night sky page, I give little star charts to show you where to find them. Neptune has a magnitude of plus 7.9 and a disk of just 2.3 arc seconds. And it should be possible to spot it with binoculars lying in the constellation Aquarius. It rises to about 27 degrees when due south, which is not bad. Given a telescope of 8 inches or greater and a dark that's around the 7th of the month when its new moon, transparent night, it should be possible to spot its moon, Triton. On the night of the 30th, it will lie up to the left of Mars. If you start at Mars, move up to the left to the 3.7th magnitude star, Lambda Aquarii, then go over to its left by about two-thirds of the way from Mars to that star, you should find it. Uranus reached opposition on October the 23rd, so it's visible pretty well all night. It'll be highest in the sky in the south around midnight, shining with a magnitude of 5.7 with a disk 3.7 arc seconds across. Its turquoise green colour should be seen in a small telescope and it will be easily spotted in binoculars. Well, we have two meteor showers in November. We have in the hours before dawn a chance to observe the meteors from two showers. The first, that doesn't produce a vast number of meteors, but some are quite bright, is the northern Taurid shower, 
which has a broad peak of around 10 days, and its peak is around the 10th of November. So that's something to look for early in the month. And that's just after new moon, so its light will not intrude. The meteors arise from comet Tupi Enka. The tail is particularly rich in large particles, and it's possible we might pass through a relatively rich band, so a number of fireballs might be observed. The better-known November shower is the Leonids, and they peak on the night of the 17th, 18th of the month. The moon is just after first quarter, so before it sets, its light will hinder our view. But by the time in the hours before dawn, its light will have left the sky. As one might expect, the shower's radiant lies within the sickle of Leo, and the meteors should be spotted any time from the 15th to the 20th of the month. They enter the atmosphere at 71 kilometers per second, so they're pretty fast, actually. And uh, you never know, sometimes you get some wonderful fireballs. And a few years ago, actually out in the Atlantic near Brazil, we had a wonderful display. There's an asteroid. It's called Juno, asteroid number three. And that makes its closest approach to Earth on November the 16th, 17th, moving in the constellation of Eridanus, as shown on the chart I provided on the night sky. On the 1st of November, looking southeast at about 11 p.m., you'll have an elevation of about 27 degrees and a magnitude of 7.58 and lie just above the 5.2 magnitude star 35 Eridani. And that will help to find it with binoculars. And I'll also give details of how on the 17th, it'll be close to magnitude 4.7 star 32 Eridani. And finally, on the last day of the month, just above 22 Eridani. So there's some chances to spot an asteroid if you've never looked at one before. Just a few final things. On November the 4th, one hour after sunset, Mars is close to Delta Capricornus. So looking south-southeast after sunset, one should, if clear, be able to spot Mars less than one degree up and to the right of the third magnitude eclipsing binary star system, Deneb Algidi. A combination of Delta Capricornus and 49 Capricornus. On November the 11th, after sunset, Saturn, if clear, will be seen below a thin crescent moon. You will need a low horizon. The thin crescent moon is just four days after new. It'll be a very nice photo opportunity, I think. On November the 16th, after sunset, Mars is close to the moon. So it'll be seen to the right of the moon, which is just after first quarter. And on the 17th, before dawn, Venus will be very close, just one and a half degrees from Alpha Virginis, the star Spiker in the constellation of Virgo. Finally, a nice object on the moon is called the Alpine Valley, and two good nights to observe it are November the 16th and 29th, and that's when the Terminator is quite close. It's a cleft that cuts across the Apennine mountain chain, which marks the edge of Mare Imbrium. It's about seven miles wide and 70 miles long. As shown in the image I give on the night sky page, there's a thin rill that runs along its length, which is quite a challenge to observe. Personally, I've never actually seen it. However, I have photographed it, and that photograph is also on the night sky page. Over the next two nights, following the 16th, the dark flawed crater Plato and the young crater Copernicus will come into view. This is a very interesting region of the moon.
Well, good hunting. At least we have some longer nights now. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Hertina Mogoshanu with the Night Sky Where You Are. Welcome to November. My name is Haritina Mogoshanu and I am your storyteller from Space Place at Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. November is my favorite month of the year. The name November comes from Latin meaning the ninth and in ancient times it was the ninth month from the beginning of the year in March. Three royal stars hang across the evening sky of November, Aldebaran in Taurus, Fomalhaut in Piscis Austrinus and Antares in Scorpius. According to French astronomer Camille Flammarion, the royal stars were the ancient guardians of the sky in ancient Persia. It was believed that the sky was divided into four districts, each guarded by one of the four royal stars. My favorite of them has always been Fomalhaut, Haftorang or Hastorang, the watcher of the south. Back in the Northern Hemisphere, Fomalhaut was the southernmost significant star that I could see and we would always look at it as the secret pointer to the south. The rumors were not far off as Fomalhaut, Achenar and Canopus are almost in a straight line and if you can find Achenar, you can always find south easily. The home constellation of Formalhaut is Piscis Austrinus, south of Capricornus and Aquarius, which is maybe why one of his names was Piscis Capricorni, or Piscis Solitarius, the lonely fish. The fish drinks all the water from Aquarius's stream, as poets Virgilius and Ovidius wrote thousands of years ago in their verses, and some believed it was actually the Piscis Austrinus that was the parent of the zodiacal Pisces, the fish. Today, Falmalhaut is the eye of the southern fish, although the original Arabic Fam al-Hat name meant the mouth of the fish, and the translation inscripted in a 1340 manuscript Almanach was Piscis Meridiani, where meridional meant southern. However, just to clarify things, it seems that the Arabs called Falmalhaut the first frog. Because it's the brightest star in a part of the sky that contains mostly faint stars, it was used in navigation just like Akenar. A triple system, Falmalhaut is about 25 light years from Earth and in 2008 it became the first star with an extrasolar planet candidate, Falmalhaut b, imaged at visible wavelengths. Back in the eastern sky, this time of the year, the Pleiades are visible again. Harbingers for Halloween in the northern hemisphere, where skies are grey and ravens await for the first snows. For Maori, the Pleiades are now harbingers of summer. Together with the Hyades, they make the wake and the feathers from the great canoe Waka of Tamarereti. November is the month when Milky Way surrounds the horizon like an ocean and the Great Waka was used by Maori to mark the arrival of the warm season when it was safe to travel the ocean. Tamarereti's Waka placed the stars in the sky and now lies moored in the wake of the Milky Way. Scorpius is Tauihu, the prow, floating low on the western horizon. Due south sits Tepunga, the anchor, the southern cross, with its rope, Tetaura, 
which is represented by the pointers Beta and Alpha Centauri. The latter is actually a multiple star system that holds our closest solar neighbor, the red dwarf Proxima Centauri, at 425 light years from Earth. The sails of Tamaretis canoe are Akenar and the beautiful southern dwarf galaxies, the small and large Magellanic Cloud. Canopus Atutahi, the second brightest star in the sky, and Circumpolar star here in New Zealand is the paramount chief of the skies at Vigil in the Waka, a source of X-rays and the most luminous close star at 300 light years from the sun. Canopus is used for navigation by all spacecraft that employ star tracker devices, which determine the orientation or attitude of the spacecraft with respect to that star. The Taurapa, or the stern of the Waka, is in the eastern sky formed by Orion. Here in New Zealand, we can see both Scorpius and Orion in the sky in the same time, and this is the time of the year to do it. With the Milky Way laying across the horizon, there aren't so many deep sky objects handy to observe. However, we are in the southern hemisphere and the spectacular Magellanic clouds are high in the sky at this time of the year. Remember, they were the sail of the Wakao Tamarereti and this sail is now set. In my first night here in New Zealand, I printed a map of them and started looking onto the southern sky, annoyed by a cirrus cloud, I thought, only to discover to my delight that it was the large Magellanic cloud I was looking at. It is that spectacular and that substantial. The large Magellanic cloud is about 160,000 light years from us, and the small Magellanic cloud is about 200,000 light years away from us. To find them, Draw a line from the Southern Cross to Akenar. Two-thirds from the Southern Cross on each side of the line are the two galaxies. Now far apart, it seems that they collided in the past, as a paper just published in October 2018 in the Astrophysical Journal Letters supports that idea with data from the Gaia satellite. Inside, the Magellanic Clouds are amazing deep-sky objects. The large Magellanic Cloud was host galaxy to a supernova, SN1987a, the brightest observed in over four centuries, co-discovered independently by Ian Shelton and Oscar Duhalde at the Las Campanas Observatory in Chile on February 24, 1987, and within the same 24 hours by the legendary Albert Jones in New Zealand. Albert Jones was the first astronomer in the world that made 500,000 observations and he could distinguish about one twentieth of a magnitude, whereas most people can distinguish about one-tenth of magnitude changes. The Large Magellanic Cloud is home of Tarantula Nebula that gets its name from its resemblance to a huge spider. Tarantula Nebula is very luminous, so great that if it were as close to Earth as the Orion Nebula, the Tarantula Nebula would cast visible shadows. Just in case you were wondering, Orion Nebula is about 1,500 light years away from Earth. Tarantula Nebula is in fact the most active starburst region known in the local group of galaxies. The small Magellanic Cloud is on the other side of the imaginary line that goes from Akenar to the Southern Cross. Recent research suggests a giant piece 
broke off the small Magellanic Cloud in the southeastern part of the galaxy, which goes toward the large Magellanic Cloud at a speed of 64 kilometers per second. So, in fact, the small Magellanic Cloud may be split in two, with the smaller section of the galaxy behind the main part, as seen from Earth's perspective, and separated by about 30,000 light years. The reason for this might be due to a past interaction with the large Magellanic Cloud splitting the small Magellanic Cloud, and again it is believed now that the two sections are still moving apart. The smaller remnant of the small Magellanic Cloud is now called the Mini Magellanic Cloud, a mini-me of a galaxy. About 15 times closer than the small Magellanic Cloud, but on the same line of sight, is my favorite star cluster, 47 Tucane, the most beautiful globular cluster that has ever been and rival of Omega Centauri. To the north, the great horse of Pegasus is flying high through the sky. Andromeda is in the sky as well, and if we could only see it from Wellington, what a sight would have been. But even if we did, would it be like a little smidge, since it's very close to the horizon. On the planetary realm, at the beginning of the month, Jupiter and Mercury will be low in the west at dusk, setting towards the southwest, one and a half hours after the sun. Orange Mars is in Capricornus, north of overhead at dusk. Midway between Mars and Jupiter is Saturn in Sagittarius. Jupiter sets earlier each night as we move to the far side of the sun from it. By mid-month, it is lost in the twilight. Mercury holds its position in the west before disappearing late in November when it passes between us and the sun. A thin crescent moon will be near Mercury and Jupiter on the 9th. At the end of the month, Saturn and Mars are the only naked eye planets in the evening sky. The moon will be near Saturn on the 11th and 12th and close to Mars on the 16th. Venus rises a little south of east 50 minutes before the sun at the beginning of the month more than one and a half hours before sunrise at the end. It is a long, thin crescent in a telescope and big binoculars. The month starts with the moon at last quarter, then new moon is on the 8th, followed by first quarter on 16th of November and full moon on the 23rd. And with this, I wish you a great November, good night and clear skies from Space Place at Carter Observatory here in Wellington, New Zealand. Thanks for that, Heratina. And now on to the feedback. Matthew Willie sent us an email saying, Love the podcast. Really look forward to hearing the show. Love that you have a section from New Zealand, where I live, just a couple hundred clicks north of the Carter Observatory. Keep up the good work. And we've also had an email in from Andrew Thomas, who says, I fully agree with your statement of your editorial position and intend to continue addressing real-world issues and how they affect your work as astronomers and students. The Jodcast provides an excellent insight into your work for those of us who fund it, that is, the UK taxpayer, and shows what excellent returns we're getting. Carry on the good work. Congratulations on having a room of your own. Well, thank you for that, Andrew. It is a very nice place we've got here. And on Facebook, James Walters says, Often wondered how it was possible to know where a meteorite originated. Glad to have it explained. Well, there you go. Yeah, so that's referring back to the interview that I did, actually, with Dr. Tony Irving in the previous episode. So that was a good one, actually. I enjoyed doing that, because he brought along some samples with him, quite a collection of samples, actually. And I spoke to him after the talk, so we could get things arranged. 
and he was handing out the samples and he says to me, oh, here you go, have, have a look at this. And he just hands me a lump of Mars like it's <laughs> the most natural thing in the world. I imagine you're one of the very few who get to tote those around quite so easily. So if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can also send us posts. The address is on our website. And thanks to Richard Bower for the interview. The editors were George Bendo, Beth Jones, Tom Scragg, Hon Ming Tang, and Ben Yu. The producer was Jake Stabberg Morgan. Until next time, shout on! on.